Well, good morning, everybody. I decided to bring my Bible with me this weekend. Thought that would be helpful. Uh, welcome to Grace. Good to have you here. We're in a new series right now that we're calling 30 and 30. And 30 and 30 is a big descriptor of uh, the vision and the mission of Grace Church. And I want to talk to you about how that needs to show up in your life, some kind of core foundational things that we need to be as followers of Jesus Christ. And then as God forms us together as a church, a church is a sum total of its individual parts. So what happens in me happens in the we of the congregation. And I want to talk to you about kind of how all that functions and plays out. Uh, 30 and 30 is simply this. It's Grace Church's belief that we're called to start 30 churches in 30 years. And uh, we call those campuses usually. We'll often say that we start new campuses. And we've started four of those campuses so far, and we want to start 26 more. And we will be looking and saying, are there places in the greater Akron area, Northeast Ohio, where the gospel is not clear and is not easily accessible? And can we do something about that? Can we move into those nooks and crannies and help the gospel be more clear and more accessible in those local communities. And we decided together as a church a few years ago that instead of kind of drawing everybody to one location, we decided that we didn't want the big auditoriums and we didn't want more and more buildings, but instead we wanted to go out. We would rather kind of hive off groups of people, have you go back to the communities that you probably live in and present Grace Church or present the gospel in those places. So to that end, uh, that's what we've been doing. Uh, That happened 16 years ago when the Norton uh, campus said, let's start the Bath campus. And we looked at Bath and said, the gospel could be more clear and more accessible in the Bath area. Let's start the Bath campus. And you're sitting in it right now. And then three years ago, we looked and said, uh, what about the east side of Medina? Uh, The gospel could be more clear and more accessible on the east side of Medina. Folks are driving past it to come here. And so we sent hundreds of folks over there. Pastor Tony Lavigny leads that charge and teaches and leads over there. And the Medina East Campus is there now. It runs about seven or 800 people. And then last year we looked and said, what about Barberton? Uh, the gospel could be more clear and more easily accessible in Barberton. A bunch of folks coming from Barberton to go to the Norton Campus or the Bath Campus. What if we sent them there? And so uh, a couple hundred folks went there to be a part of the Barberton campus, and Jeff Martell leads that effort for us. They run about, uh, they've been running about 250, 300 here the last few weeks, so God is doing great, great things there. And now we're in conversations with a, a church in Ellet. In fact, we need to pray together because they're going to be voting today whether they're going to join us as our next campus or not. And we look again at the Ellet community. There's 20,000 people that live in that community. There's some good churches, but the gospel could be more clear and more easily accessible. What if we went out that direction and started a new campus there as well? And that's what we'll continue to do. Uh, Instead of drawing everybody in, we wanna send us out. We wanna keep reaching, obviously, the Bath, Copley area, kind of our hometown here. But we wanna continue to reach out to these other areas as well. And our goal is to do that at least 26 more times so that we, in 30 years, leave 30 campuses behind us. So what we say is, instead of growing one big tree, 
Our goal is to leave an orchard behind us. We want to plant other trees, different sizes, different varieties, but all fruit-bearing, and that will kind of be our legacy uh, of, a, of a generation when we're done with it. Now, to this end, God has done some amazing things here at the Bath Campus as well, and one of the things that we know is this, that in about the last three years, we've sent out about 1,000 people from the Bath Campus, and they've gone out and helped to start these other campuses. But our attendances haven't changed. So what that means is at the same time, about 1,000 of you have started coming to the Bath Campus, and we know that about 1,000 or about a third of the people that are here on a given weekend have been here for about three years or so. And many of you would say, yeah, that's me, and that's awesome, by the way. We're thrilled about that. But as we're looking at that, we, we, I looked uh, back and said, you know what? I realize that there are some conversations that we've never had together. Uh, there's conversations that we've had along the way that have uh, been really um, uh, essential to the DNA of what grace is and why we do what we do. And so many of us are new, many of us have accepted Christ, over 300 of us just this last year, that these are conversations maybe that we have not yet reached in our normal kind of teaching here at Grace Church. So we wanted to take the time in 30 and 30 to lean into these conversations and talk about them because we believe, I believe, that these are essential conversations to your interaction with Jesus Christ. So we talked all the way back to the beginning of the year, we talked about our habits, and we talked about fasting and prayer and daily time in God's word and spending time with God. And I wanna kind of advance and deepen those conversations here the next couple weeks. And I wanna talk about some things that are kind of beyond the gospel. We're not talking necessarily right now about how we're a sinner and Christ is our savior and he's the only path of salvation but we're talking about kind of the ramifications of that in our life and who we should be kind of fundamentally as followers of Jesus Christ. And then as you and I lock into those fundamental things as individuals, the, the me becomes the we. We then will lock into those things fundamentally as a church congregation. And that's kind of what makes all of our vision and our passions make sense, okay? So I wanna talk about this first thing. And it, like I said, if you're new in your faith, you've probably never heard this stuff before. If you're newer to grace, maybe you've never heard us teach it. And then for the rest of us, it's a reminder because these are all things that we drift off of and kind of lose sight of a little bit. But I wanna talk about these, one of these core foundational pieces that should be a part of every Christ follower's life. It should be a focus. It should be what we're known for. As a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, my family, my neighbors, my friends, my roommates, those kind of things, they should see this hallmark in me and someone who is a representative or a follower of Jesus Christ should be known by these things being evidence in their life. And I wanna to talk to you this weekend about justice and mercy. Justice and mercy and humility, how those three things need to play out in our lives in a real way. Uh, if you've uh, got your notes, pull those out real quick. Or if you wanna use the app, you can use those. Let me define mercy for you and then we'll, i show you how it ties into justice and humility and uh, we'll dig into this a little bit. Uh, when you think about mercy, mercy is this. Mercy is showing compassion or forgiveness to someone to whom it is within your rights to harm or ignore. Mercy is showing compassion or forgiveness to someone to whom it is within your rights to harm 
or ignore. That's kind of the Webster's definition. Mercy is simply this idea that I have certain relationships in my life, I have certain needs in the world, there are certain issues around me that I don't have a natural responsibility for. It's within my rights, so to say, not to tie into those things, or it's within my rights to treat a person a certain way. Mercy is a cognitive decision. I'm doing this on purpose. It's not enabling. It's not failing to make people take responsibility for their lives. It's, it's not uh, just pretending something didn't happen. I know it happened. I know that it's not necessarily my responsibility. I'm choosing to involve myself, even though it's within my rights, so to say, to ignore it or to cause someone to feel the consequences of what they did. So for instance, um, when I think about having mercy, I might think about the children that are dying of famine in Africa. And I might look and say, I'm gonna give money or I'm gonna sponsor a child or we're gonna do Feed My Starving Children together, those kind of things. I would look at those children and say, um, I don't have any natural responsibility for them, right? They're not my children. They're not my neighbor's children. They're not like my nieces and nephews. Um, they're, they're people over there that I didn't cause the war, I didn't cause the famine, seems like they have a government, the UN and all this kind of stuff. Why are we taking responsibility for them? Well, we would look and say, well, that's an act of mercy. I, I, I don't have a normal responsibility for them, but I'm choosing to involve myself in something that it's within my rights to not involve myself in. Uh, there's certain people in our lives that we actually do have a, a moral superiority to. So think of an ex-con that's coming out of prison and he's having trouble or he's a prisoner, right? People that are in prison now. And you can look and say, well, hey, I never robbed a bank. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't, I didn't commit that crime. Like, why, why should I be responsible for them? Why should I invest my life into them? And the answer actually is that's correct. There is actually a moral superiority because I morally did not participate in the things you participated in, but I'm choosing to do that. I want to be merciful. I, I, it's within my rights to ignore that, but I'm deciding to involve myself in it. It's not a guilt trip. It's nothing like that. It's I'm deciding that I want to do this. Uh, there are many people in our lives and around us that are simply uh, feeling the consequences of their decisions, right? They made their bed, now they're sleeping in it. And we can look and say, hey, it's, you're the one that dropped out of school and didn't get an education, and now I'm supposed to deal with your poverty issues? Uh, you're, you know, it, it, you're, the one, you're the one that's got four different kids by by four different men, and now suddenly I'm supposed, I'm supposed to tutor your kids, right? It is a natural consequence of bad decision-making. Nobody's arguing that, because we're not talking about enabling, we're not talking about pretending that things didn't happen, but it's looking and saying, I'm going to have mercy on you. Um, some of us deal with this in our own family. We can look and say, hey, listen, Dad, I know that you're old and you're sick now, but I didn't, I didn't walk out on me, you walked out on me. And now, 25 years later, you show up because you don't have another phone call, right? That is, is dad responsible? Sure, he's responsible, right? I'm not enabling, I'm not ignoring, but I might choose to have mercy. Hey, mom, listen, you're the one that, I grew up with crazy, and we called her mom, 
<laughs> right? And now she's back and she needs help and she's sick and she's dying and who's gonna take care of her? And who's advocating for her? Because she blew up every relationship she ever had and now here I am. It's not pretending it didn't happen. I'm choosing to be compassionate, to forgive. I'm choosing not to operate within my rights, right? Because I want to be merciful. And God would teach us that this is one of the hallmarks of his people, that as an individual follower of Jesus Christ and that as me becomes we, as a collective group of followers of Jesus Christ, mercy is one of the things that makes us, not enablement, not ignoring, not pretending, not turning a blind eye, but deciding that we're going to involve ourselves in things that aren't necessarily our, in the, our uh, dead-on responsibilities. Now, let me show you this. In the book of Micah, it's a great book of the Bible. If you have your Bibles, open up to Micah chapter 6. We're going to look at chapter 6 and 7. It's page 650 in those Bibles that are in the chairs. Micah chapter 6 and 7. I would look at this and I would say as a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, this is one of the, the key passages you should work into your lives. That this is one of the ways that we sync up with God and one of the ways that we really reflect his heart and live this stuff out. So I love this passage. In fact, Heidi and I love it so much, we actually named one of our sons Micah. He's named after this verse, right? Because we would believe it's that core to being a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what's happening in Micah. Micah was a prophet. And uh, Micah was sent by God to talk to the people of God and of the Old Testament Israel. And Israel had rebelled against God. They had ignored God. They had walked away from uh, God's, uh, uh, their relationship with God. And that's kind of the story of the Old Testament. It's God redeeming people rebelling, God redeeming people rebelling. It's a roller coaster ride, right? In fact, they should have a new roller coaster at Cedar Point, just called the Old Testament. That's what it should be, right? And so they're in one of these rebelling places where they're rebelling against God. God loves them. They cry out once they're in trouble, like we still do today. They cry out and God sends Micah to, to uh, help them think it through. So what the prophets would often do, if you read the whole book, they'll often point out the problem. This is where you've rebelled against God. They'll often then lay down a solution. This is how you return to God. And then oftentimes near the end, they'll, they'll lean into the character of God. This is what God is really like. And so this is the God that you're loving and responding to. So in Micah chapter six, Micah is laying out the solution. He's saying, if you want to return to God, this is what you need to do. And he says this in verse six of chapter six of Micah. He kind of asks this rhetorical question, uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's talking to the people, Micah is, and saying, what, what, what are you supposed to do? Am I supposed to sell everything I have and give it to the poor? Am I supposed to, uh, become, am I supposed to join a monastery? Am I supposed to become a nun? Am I supposed to be a monk? Am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? What does God want from his people? And then he answers the question in verse eight. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is, to act justly, and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And the people of God are to be marked by justice and mercy and humility, right? Now, justice and mercy and humility, and the three things go together. 
and they're to be hallmarks of the people of God. We define mercy, let me define justice for you. Justice is this, justice is when I intentionally and impartially render someone which is, render uh, to everyone that which is due them. When I intentionally and impartially render to everyone that which is due them. In other words, justice is this, when I look at another human being and I give to them the dignity and the honor and the worth that their creator God gave to them. When I look at another human being and I give to them the dignity and the honor and the worth that their creator God has given to them. So a follower of Christ is to be known as a just person. And when we see injustices in the world, the follower of Jesus Christ is to act justly or to stand differently against those Injustices. So let me give you some examples of some injustices. So for instance, a bigotry is an injustice. When I look at someone because they're a different race or they're a different ethnicity or they're from a different country, and I look and say, well, you're inferior because of your skin or you're inferior because of your language or you're inferior because of your culture or maybe you're not a natural born citizen like I think you should be, and I'm a bigoted person toward anybody for anything. I'm being unjust, why? Because I'm not rendering to someone impartially what is due them. I'm not looking at a person with the value that God has given to that human being, right? If I'm a chauvinist, if I'm a male chauvinist, and I look and I say, you know, you know women, I, I sexualize women, uh, a woman is just a, a pornographic picture to me. Or I dumb that you're just, well, you know what you're talking about. Or I don't respect my wife, I don't honor her. I'm being un- unjust to her. Why? Because the Bible specifically says that in Christ there is no male, there is no female. In other words, there is no lower class, higher class in Christ. That we treat each other as brothers and sisters, there's an equality because God has given honor and respect to that which he's created. If I'm a man hater, you know, all men are pigs, right? All men, that's the problem, all men are pigs. Thank you, I am not one, right? Uh, you're just a dumb man. I'll tell you what the problem is. The only thing ever on a man's mind, if I'm a man hater, I'm being unjust. Why? Because God has given dignity. He has assigned position. He has given responsibility to that human being, to my husband or my brother or my friend or just men in general, Right? So it's unjust when I treat someone like that. Uh, most of our world struggles on some kind of a class system. We do it here in the States, but it's a very predominant across the rest of the world where I would look and say, well, you know, those people, they live down there in that city. They have that zip code. All oh, those people, the ones that ride the buses, oh. Right? And we would look and we would be unjust to someone because they socially, economically can't measure to us. And God would say, what does the Lord require of you? He requires justice. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that you should be able to look at me and count on from me is I'm a just person. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your zip code is. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what language you speak you will be given dignity because you are created and loved by God and God gave his son to lay his life down for you, right? 
And by the way, this is one of the historical hallmarks of the church. Uh, the church of Jesus, we certainly have made our mistakes over the millennial, and, and when we certainly have our warts, but we have our shining moments too. It was the church of Jesus Christ who first gave dignity to women, who first said, you can't treat a woman like property. When Paul in Ephesians and other places teaches on marriage and mutual submission, these were radical ideas in the ancient world because women weren't even considered people. So it was the gospel of Jesus Christ who said, no, 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 this is a sister in Christ. She should have rights. She should have opportunities. You shouldn't just be able to abandon her and walk out on her. In fact, you know what? She should be able to vote. That, all was, that was the church of Jesus saying, no, we are people of justice. It was the church of Jesus Christ that first started to push against slavery, that looked and said, wait a minute, it, this, was, this was a spiritual cause, Wilberforce over in England, and then it spread across the pond to the states. This was a spiritual cause where they looked and said, wait a minute, th- that person's skin is different than mine, but we're singing and praying to the same Jesus. Aren't we brothers and sisters? This is wrong, it's immoral, it can't happen. And that drove all the way through the civil rights movement. It it was the church of Jesus Christ now, I'm actually very proud of this, the church of Jesus Christ who was stepping up and saying, wait a minute, human sex trafficking? No, absolutely not. These are human beings, girls, boys. And this is something that we, mu- we will not stand for this. It's unjust. See, what's God require of you? That I act justly. That I render unto another human being the dignity and the honor and the worth that is due them, given to them by their creator, God. This is why the church stands uh, against abortion. It's not a political issue for the church. It's a moral issue. Why? Because it's unjust. It's the taking of a human life. That's why the churches would stand against euthanasia. Why? Because it's not a political issue. That An elderly person deserves respect and honor and care. It doesn't matter the price tag. It matters that there's a human life involved. See, it's unjust. We wouldn't want anyone to be taken advantage of that way. And when I weave that into my life, I live that way now. I'm going to be a person of justice. I'm going to render. I'm not going to talk down. I'm not going to throw away. Now I'm starting to sync myself up with the person of Jesus Christ who is just. And this is what happens. Justice will produce, ready, mercy in my life. And when God says here in Micah chapter six, verse eight, you are to act justly, that's a set of actions, it's a set of positions. Notice that the next word he says, he doesn't say act justly and then act mercifully. He says, I want you to act justly and I want you to love mercy. I want you to be passionate about mercy. I want you to, I don't want mercy to be something that you're stuck with something that you're obligated to do, guess I have to be merciful now, right? I want you to see injustices and take a stand and be on the side of value and worth and dignity from creator God. And then I want you to be passionate about mercy, that mercy is something you get to do, you get to be involved with, you get to give someone. And when I act justly and as I love mercy, 
I will do that because I am walking humbly with my God. Justice and mercy do not come from my humanity. They come from the transformation of my heart. And I will never understand justice and mercy until I understand my relationship with God. If I understand justice in a purely human terms, then I will feel just or unjust about whatever I decide is fair or unfair. I will be merciful to whoever I decide is worthy or unworthy of mercy. If I understand justice and mercy through humility, what I do is I look and I say, I want to give to others that which has been given to me. I am an object of God's justice, and I am an object of God's mercy. See, the Bible says we've all sinned. Everybody's fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. It's not that you might go to hell one day. It's that you're on your way there outside of Christ right now. And the justice of God, God is a perfectly just God. So the justice of God had to be satisfied. And God, loving you and me, wishing that no one would perish but all would have a way of escape, satisfied his justice through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Jesus died for us. He was our substitute. He paid a price he didn't know for those, he paid a debt he didn't know for those of us who owe a debt that we could not pay. And I am an object of God's justice and his justice was satisfied, ready? Mercifully. It was not Christ's responsibility to die for my sin. He didn't sin. I didn't cry out to God, say, please, please help me. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. I am not a, a good person on my own. I'm a rebellious person. I'm a person that has filthy thoughts. I'm a person that has selfish motives. I'm a person who's narcissistic. I'm a person who is angry. I'm a person who's dissatisfied. I'm a person who's ungrateful. I'm the pastor. Imagine what a mess you guys are, right? That's who I am. And that legal case against me had to be satisfied because I'm a sinner who deserves hell. A merciful God satisfied a just God by giving his son. And I am an object now of God's mercy. God involved himself for me. He could have ignored me. It was well within his rights. He is in no way obligated to forgive or be compassionate toward me. I am not in it. He was in heaven. I'm not even his natural purview of life. But he humbled himself. He took on the very nature of a man. He became a servant and he obeyed even to death on the cross, see. And I am an object of God's mercy. And when I walk humbly with my God, and I realize that I, ha I have nothing to offer God, everything God gives me is a reflection of his mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness to me. The Bible says that, my, that the mercies of the Lord are made new every morning. Why? Because I wake up a jerk every day. Every day I wake up a sinner. Every day I'm, I'm immoral in my mind. Every day I'm selfish in my actions. Every day. Not only am I an object of God's mercy for my salvation, but I'm in continual need of God's mercy. Because if he ever decided that he had enough and today's the day that my sins are held against me, I'm straight to hell. 
I'm dependent on God's mercy. And understanding that causes me to live a life of humility. I need to know what God has to say. I need to remember my position before God. I need God's continual input in my life. And being just and being merciful is not me being a good human being because I can't be one. Being just and being merciful is me being a humble follower of Jesus Christ, looking at other human beings and saying, how can I deny you what is so freely given to me? And Micah says that's the requirement. That's what God wants. He wants us to remember who God is and what God is like. And Micah then kind of finishes his prophecy or his preaching to the people. And he says, this is what God's like. Chapter seven, verse 18. He's kind of praising God and he's saying, who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but ready? But delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will, you will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Who is like you, God? You're eager to forgive me. That humbles me. You're ready to pardon me. That humbles me. I didn't deserve it. You don't just, you're not just stuck with mercy. You're not obligated to mercy. You love it. You delight in mercy. The opportunity for you to choose to be merciful is what makes your day. And God does not ignore our sin and he does not excuse our sin and he does not enable our sin. In fact, it cost him his son to deal with it. But he delights in choosing compassion and forgiveness, even though it's within his rights to ignore and to judge and to cause harm. He's a merciful God. Now, as a follower of Jesus, what I'm, what I'm looking for then is this. I'm, 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 I'm listening to God and dialing to God. Maybe I, I, I did a fast. Maybe I'll do another one. I'm, I'm praying to God. I'm in con- continual conversation with God. I'm in God's word I'm hearing with God, I'm knowing his heart and his mind. I'm being alone with God, I'm deep in my relationship with God. And now I'm looking for that to show up, for God-like characteristics to show up in my life. So as I humbly accept the word of Christ planted in me, now I want that to flow out of me. And I'm looking and I'm saying, I'm gonna measure my instincts. When I, when I deal with the individuals around me, or even as I, as I kind of monitor my worldview, what is, what is my instinctual response to my enemies? What's my instinctual response to those who have harmed me? What's my instinctual response? Because God's instinctual response to me is mercy, right? Because his justice was satisfied. So is that my instinctual response to people around me to, to seek justice for those who are oppressed or to be merciful even to those who deserve? Is that my instinctual response? So I'm gonna look at certain things in my life and I'm gonna ask myself the question, is it that or is it something else? I know in my life, I struggle with things like this. Oftentimes, I, my instinctual response is callousness. I'm callous to other people's issues. I'll look and say, well, that's, what's that gotta do with me? Right, why is that my problem? I got my own kids, I got my own issues. Right? Why, should I, why should I deal with something 
across the world or outside of my purview. That's a city problem. That, I live in the suburbs. That's, got, that's miles away, at least one or two or three miles away. And I'll be callous to those things. Uh, oftentimes, I find that my, my instinctual response is indifference, and usually indifference comes from ignorance. I'll be honest with you, this, this used to be my response to human sex trafficking. I was indifferent to it. I thought it was like this problem in Asia. And I had to be educated. Somebody had to come in front of me and say, listen, do you know this is right here in front of you? Do you know where the hub of human sex trafficking is in Akron, Ohio? You know where it is? Fairlawn. You're sitting in it. Most human sex trafficking in Akron, Ohio, originates through Fairlawn, the highways and the hotels. Do you know that Ohio is the second leading state for human sex trafficking in North America? I thought for sure it was New York or LA or one of, you know, one of those liberal cities, one of those liberal states. Yeah. Why well, was indifferent? Because I was ignorant. And now all of a sudden I realized, well, wait a minute. Yeah, what, what do I have to do with human sex trafficking? I don't, I don't hire prostitutes. Wait, where's the mercy? Where's the engagement? Where's the delighting in, loving of? Where's the justice that this girl is preyed upon? A lot of times her kids are hung over her head if she doesn't do what she's told to do. Where's the, the justice? See, So my instinctual response can be callous. Sometimes it's indifference. Sometimes my instinctual response is to depersonalize it. It, whenever you don't want to deal with, a, with an issue, all you got to do is lump a group of people together and depersonalize them, and then they leave our conscious, right? You know them Muslims, they're all terrorists. Muslims, we ought, to, we ought to nuke them. We ought to carpet bomb the Middle East. We ought to make the sands glow. Really? I thought for sure Christ came to die them and that the propagation of the gospel should be what leads the way I was talking to a friend who's a, 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 a missionary in Turkey and he said Jeff he goes do you know that where the gospel is spreading the fastest right now is Iran I didn't know that I said I said how, how does that happen I said how do how do you get the gospel spread in Iran he goes it takes blood the, the, the first people in are always the martyrs. He said, there are people that die every day who shed their blood to proclaim the gospel in Iran. And we're going to nuke them? The instinctual response, see, because I get caught up in politics and I get frustrated with the violence and I don't like the fact that people stink into our country and murder us either. But what is my response, see? This is not a ignoring, and it's not a lack of justice, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything. But what would be the heart of Christ toward these things? I find a lot of times my, my, my instinctual response is vengeance. I'm a punch-you-back person. I'll just be honest with you. You hit me, I'll hit you back. You hit me twice, I will get Heidi. And... <laughs> The two of us will wipe you out. I'll tell her exactly what 
to do, right? And, and so, and Micah says, "Listen, this is what's required. What? How do you live? What does God give you? How does Christ advocate? What is His instinctual response to you?" And all the Lord says is, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You extend to others what is so freely given to you. And the people of God, the individual of God, is to be known for justice, mercy, and humility. The corporate people of God, the church, the local church, Grace Church, is to be known for justice, mercy, in humility, and this should be our hallmark. That when your friends or your roommate or your classmate or your teammate or your coworker or your neighbor, when they look and say, my life is blown up, I'm in trouble, I'm scared, I need a second chance. You know, I should call. And when our community then looks and says, we got a problem, it's sex trafficking, it's heroin, it's divorce, it's, it's it's illiteracy, it's the cities, it's the, you know, you know who would help us is? And when justice and mercy and humility are the hallmark of God's people. Now guys, listen, you wanna, you wanna live a contrarian life? You wanna live against the grain? Mercy is gone from our world. You don't get to mess up anymore. You screw up once, it's on the internet, it will follow you the rest of your life. You could be the merciful person that gives the second chance. See? It's all political, all the way through the offices. You could be the just boss who doesn't play favorites, but looks and is objective about how they interact with people. Our response could be different to the needs of our world. That we love you just because we decided to love you. That things that aren't right in front of us are still things that we take ownership of. And we start living like that. You start speaking that up in a political arena. You start living that kind of life. And you will not have to wear a Christian t-shirt. You will not have to listen to the fish. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You, you, will, you will not have to have a Christian bumper sticker. Don't have a Christian bumper sticker. I don't have one because I want to cut you off because for me, everything is the Daytona 500. You will stick out like a sore thumb because you live the opposite of everybody else. When you are a defender of the weak, when you are a champion of the oppressed, when you refuse to be the bully at school and jump in with everybody else, but instead you move in and you protect that person who's being picked on. You bring them into your friend group. You serve a community that you don't always agree with. But the justice and the mercy and the humility, the justice and the mercy that's poured out into my life and produces a humility because of what Christ does for me. And we'll take that even as a church and we'll say, yeah, when we talk about 30 and 30, that's what we're talking about. 
those kind of churches. And do we stand on the truth? Absolutely. We have never compromised the word of God once. Do we have to stand against our culture? Absolutely we have to because the culture is naturally sinful. We stand against them in all kinds of ways, not just on abortion and gay rights. But if truth is not delivered with justice and mercy, then it's delivered hypocritically. Because if that truth has not transformed me, why would I point at you and say it should transform you? That gospel of Jesus Christ is holistic. And that gospel that is hard to access and is not clear can be presented by people who have been transformed by it. Never apologizing for it, but having our life and our passions altered through it. And Christ wishes that none would perish. There are consequences. There is a hell. It's a real place, and people will go there outside of salvation through Jesus Christ. But it breaks the heart of God. It doesn't cause him to celebrate that he finally got even. And as we present the gospel and we stand on the truth and we teach unapologetically the word of God, the hallmark of our lives is justice and mercy and humility and gratitude that the Christ we proclaim was proclaimed to us. See how that works? And when you lock into that in your personal walk with God, then the church is the sum total of its individual parts. We'll, walk, we'll lock into that in our corporate interaction with God, and that will be the hallmark that Grace Church leaves, and that'll be the hallmark of your life as well. All right. Let me ask you a couple questions. Here's the first one. What's your instinct? Be honest with that. You don't have to say it out loud, but just be honest with it. When you hear the politics and you hear the problems and you're fed up and you're frustrated and you see a culture attacking us, that is nothing more than an enemy, spiritual, social, cultural, even personal. What's my instinct? And my instinct will tell me a lot about my humility. How I respond to other people will tell me the, the way that I respond to God. So I'm just asking. What's your instinct? Has that been brought under the definition and the direction of Christ? And the second question I would ask you is this, is have you received the mercy of Christ? Because you're not okay. You're not a good person. The Bible says every human being is wicked and sinful. It's not that you might go to hell one day, it's that you're on your way there right now. And the justice of God was satisfied once for all through Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross. There is no reason to not be connected with God because a way of escape has been made. But salvation must be received from Christ and Christ alone. And I yield my life. The, the old time preachers would say, I bow my knee before God. I humble myself and I receive the salvation and the mercy and grace of God. Have you done that? Because these character tra traits aren't human things, they're supernatural things, it's Christ transforming me. And if you've never received the salvation of Christ, you need to bow your knee before Christ, humble yourself and accept what he freely wants to give. 
Hey guys, then <clears throat> what about us? See, is this a is this a collective determination that we're making as a church? We have to keep deciding this. We have to keep deciding that we don't exist for ourselves, we exist for the world. And that we're gonna go to hard places and we're gonna do the hard things that nobody else wants to do because we're blown away by what Christ has done for us. So whether it's the City Expo or it's churches in Atlanta or Africa or Ellet, collectively, those are things I can do. Those are things that we have to do, right? And will we collectively make those decisions? That's, that's why I want you to come to those vision gatherings and stuff like that, because it, 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 we have to press into these things. And we have to delight in them, see? Because the me becomes we. And uh, as God changes you, God changes us, and then we go together, all right? Okay, I'm gonna pray for us. As I do, the band will come out and they'll create some space for us to thank and pray. I just encourage you to open your hearts and your minds toward the Lord and give them the latitude here. This is a big question to, uh, to speak into your heart. Jesus, we love you. God, help us to see this. Lord, it's hard, it's hard for me. I'm, I'm all about what's fair and about responsibility and Lord, I'm so grateful that you don't hold me to the standards I hold everybody else to. And so, God, I don't always know the balances. We're not called to enable. We're not called to just pretend like things didn't happen, but we are called to be merciful. And so we need your guidance. We need the leading of the Holy Spirit. God, give us an instinct to want to be like you, to love you, and to love those that you bring into our lives the way that we have been loved. God, even in these still moments, open our hearts and our minds and press deeply into us. Help us now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.